privilege to be here with you all and minister to you with God's Word tonight. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the first letter of John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John. In your pew Bibles, it's page 1021. We'll be looking at 1 John chapter 1, the first four verses. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's infallible Word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you praise for, Lord, your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, we pray for the illuminating work of your spirit, Lord, in our, height, in our hearts, rather, that we might uh, see the, the glory and, and the riches of your truth tonight, truth which is found in Jesus Christ, your son. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, to become a member of this church, and really any faithful church, you have to be able to explain who Jesus is, what he did, and why that matters to you personally. Uh, You don't need to be a trained seminarian or a published theologian, but if you claim Jesus as your only hope of salvation, you should be able to articulate the basics of the gospel. Who is Jesus? What did he do? What did he accomplish? And yet there are many in the church at large who can't do this, even though they identify as Christians. They'll tell you they're Christians. They'll say they follow Jesus. But when you ask the probing question, well, who was Jesus and what did he do? That's where you generate a variety of answers. Uh, There's Jesus, the spiritual revolutionary who brought fresh religious teachings that are sure to deepen your own spiritual journey. There's Jesus, the social revolutionary, who came to promote social justice and equality and lift up the marginalized. There's Jesus, the moral revolutionary, who came to teach us how to lead a good life, a life that will put a smile on God's face. There's Jesus, the political revolutionary, who came to lead the charge against the Romans and who came to teach us how we too might defy our governments. There's Jesus the Republican, Jesus the Democrat, Jesus the Socialist, Jesus the Capitalist. When asked to explain who Jesus is and what He was about, these are the kinds of things you often hear, aren't they, from people who self-identify as Christians. And really what these responses all have in common is that they reveal man's sinful tendency to shape Jesus in his own image to suit his own agenda. It's like that old Burger King slogan, for those of you who remember it, have it your way, right? We want to sometimes have Jesus our way, but a Jesus we have our way, a Jesus who's been created in our image, friends, is a Jesus that does not exist. He's not the Jesus unveiled to us here in these 
four verses by the Apostle John. That's John's concern right here in the beginning of his first letter. He wants to show us the real Jesus. Not one who's been conjured up by our imaginations. Not one who's been fabricated by secular historians. And not one who's been uh, invented by false teachers like the kinds of false teachers John is actually writing against. No, his aim is to give us the pure unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ because it's only through this gospel that sinners like you and me can have fellowship with the living God. That is John's objective in this text. To give us the gospel so that we have the truth about Jesus, about why He came, and why we need Him. And the first thing John tells us is that the gospel recorded in Scripture is the reliable and authoritative eyewitness testimony of the apostles. I know that is a mouthful, but it's there in the text. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 again. John writes that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now notice here how John writes all of this from a first-hand perspective. This is an eyewitness testimony that includes not just him, but others. He uses the plural we to signal that he's speaking on behalf of a group of people, on behalf of the apostles. Uh, this is the personal account of those chosen select few who walked with Jesus, the Word of Life, and who witnessed His life, His ministry, firsthand. John uses all of this sensory language here to corroborate the Apostles' testimony. He says that the Apostles heard Jesus. The message that they proclaim and bear witness to is one that they heard over and over again from the Word of Life Himself. They also saw Jesus with their own eyes. They saw Him heal lepers, give sight to the blind, make the lame walk. They witnessed Him uh, casting out demons, raising the dead even, like Lazarus. They saw Jesus crucified. They saw the empty tomb. And even Thomas, you remember, put his fingers in the holes in Jesus' hands just to confirm that it was really Him. They looked upon Jesus. They touched Him with their own hands. This Word of Life. In a similar way, I could ask, well, how do you know that I'm in this room preaching to you right now? Well, it's because you can see me. It's because you can hear me. After the service, you might shake my hand just to confirm that it's actually me here. Well, John is saying the same kind of thing about Jesus. And the Apostle Peter shares this perspective, telling us that the apostles were eyewitnesses of the majesty of Christ. John, Peter, and the other apostles had a personal relationship with Jesus. They experienced His ministry and their first-hand accounts have been recorded, written down, preserved for us as Holy Scripture. We not only have the Gospels, which were written either by the Apostles themselves or by those under the supervision of the Apostles, but we also have the Apostolic Letters. And so the New Testament writings are primary sources of information about Jesus Christ. And we we value primary sources, don't we? If there's a car accident, for instance, the police will often interview bystanders, those who witnessed the car accident, because they tend to be a lot more objective than the drivers themselves. And think also of how important witnesses are in a court of law. 
They're called to testify to their knowledge of the plaintiff or the defendant or the events and circumstances surrounding the case. In so many ways, we value primary sources, which is why the Apostle John labors in these opening verses to explain that he and the other apostles are primary sources of information about Jesus Christ. John writes at the end of his Gospel, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. The apostolic testimony recorded in the New Testament writings is the trustworthy, credible, and reliable account of who Jesus is and what He did while He walked this earth. And what's more is that their testimony is an authoritative account. John is invoking here his apostolic authority as another reason to trust his words. And now by invoking his own authority, the authority of a man, John is not denying the divine inspiration of Scripture as if his authority is is greater than God's authority and so you should trust your Bibles. Ultimately, because John says so, it's because it's his word and not God's. No, that is not what John is saying at all. Uh, Scripture is God's self-revelation and so the Bible has ultimate authority because its words are not merely the words of man but the words of the living God. Everything penned by the apostles finds its origin in the mind of the Lord. And and so when John invokes his authority as a reason to trust his message, what he's doing is really speaking out of his office as an apostle. The apostles were eyewitnesses of the risen and descended and glorified Christ. And they were specifically chosen by Jesus Himself to be His agents of revelation. They were the human authors who were commissioned to write down the Word of the Lord. As the Apostle Peter says, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote such that their writings, the writings of men, bear the authority of God Himself. But why is it important that John is invoking his apostolic authority here? Well, Because it tells you that the New Testament writings aren't just first-hand accounts of your average Joe Israelite. They're the eyewitness testimonies of those Jesus not only personally knew, but those He also personally called and authorized to record His Word. As He told His disciples in John 15, and you also will bear witness because you have been with Me from the beginning. And so the apostolic witness to Christ in your Bibles is both reliable and authoritative because of the Apostles' unique calling in the church. And this is, friends, so important to grasp because in our day there are many non-Christian authors who publish books, who write articles for Time Magazine or National Geographic or some other publication and they claim to have what? To uncover the real Jesus. Or the Jesus of history, the historical Christ. Uh, You see this kind of thing, don't you, during Christmas and Easter especially. Uh, You go to the grocery store perhaps and you're in the checkout line and there's Time Magazine right there promising to uncover the real Jesus of Easter. And He's nothing like the Jesus in your Bible. There's this assumption, isn't there, that the Jesus in your Bible is not the real one. You need someone other than an apostle to tell you the truth. 
Those who publish these kinds of articles and books operate from an atheistic worldview in which they deny God, in which they reject all supernatural realities, and so their starting point is that the Bible can't give us accurate information about the historical Jesus. Because the Jesus of our Bibles doesn't square with their atheistic beliefs. And so if you want to know the real Jesus, what do you do? Well, you have to go to these other authors and trust what they say, these people who weren't even around when Jesus walked the earth. Don't trust the writings of the apostles like John. Don't trust those who personally knew Jesus and talked with Him, ate with Him, and witnessed His miracles, His death, resurrection, and ascension. No, don't trust these ancient texts and these first-hand accounts. Instead, listen to me, they say. A modern authority in all things related to Jesus in the Bible. That's pretty ridiculous if you think about it because there's no other situation in which someone would follow that kind of advice. Uh, For instance, if you wanted to get an accurate account of a historical event or a situation uh, like American slavery, you can certainly read the perspectives of contemporary historians. But what do they base their accounts on and their findings on? Well, the first-hand accounts of people like Frederick Douglass or Booker T. Washington, men who were actually slaves, who actually lived through it. Trustworthy historians base their conclusions on first-hand accounts. Under no other circumstances would any rational person dismiss primary sources in favor of sources far removed from the events or the people that they're talking about. And so why then do people approach the Bible We should ask, why do they approach the Bible with such an irrational and critical mindset? Well, it's because the Bible isn't like any other book. The Bible makes claims about us and about Jesus that we naturally find offensive. Those who approach God's Word with a critical mindset do so because at the core of the sinner's heart, is a desire to rule one's own life and not to submit to an authority greater than himself. An authority that he knows exists, but continues to reject and suppress in unrighteousness. Paul adds in in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says this, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And in Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So why do people reject the clear eyewitness testimony of the apostles recorded in the Bible in favor of alternative theories about the so-called real Jesus? Why does anyone reject the Gospel at all? It's because... The unbeliever is in a constant state of active rebellion against the truth and the God of truth. The unbelieving mind is darkened by sin and blinded by sin, and it hasn't been awakened to the truth by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit through which the sinner is finally able to see Jesus for who He really is. It really is that simple. The Gospel revealed in Scripture is the reliable and authoritative eyewitness testimony of the apostles such that you can't know the real Jesus Christ apart from their writings. 
As John says in chapter 20 of his Gospel, he writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Friends, you and I have not seen Jesus in the flesh. One day, we will. And it will be a glorious sight. But now, we have not seen Jesus in the flesh. We have not witnessed miracles like John and the other apostles. But the good news of our text is that seeing is not always believing. You don't need to see Jesus in order to know Him and to believe in Him. Why? Because you have the apostolic message which isn't only the testimony of the apostles, but ultimately, it's the testimony of Jesus about Himself. And so John's first emphasis is on the reliability and the authority of the apostolic witness to Jesus Christ. The apostles heard and they saw the real Jesus. They were appointed by Him to write about Him. And their message has been preserved by God in Scripture and handed down to you. And so we have their message, but it's not enough to just have the message. We need to know what the message is. What does the message say? What's so important and so urgent that we need to pay attention to these ancient writings of John and the other apostles. That's the second emphasis in our text. It's on the content of the Gospel. And John says quite plainly that the content of his Gospel message centers on the person of Jesus Christ. He calls Jesus the Word of Life and says that this Word was manifested to Him and the apostles which refers to Christ's physical appearance in the Incarnation. And so the Word of Life, as John uses it here, is both a message... And a person. It's a message about a person, but not just any person. At the heart of the Gospel message is the person of God the Son. As John says in verse 2, the Word of life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. This is similar to what he writes in the prologue of his Gospel that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so both in his Gospel and in his first letter, John is telling us that the pre-incarnate Son became embodied in human flesh. This is the unified claim of the apostles, preserved in their writings and passed down through the ages to you, that God has revealed Himself to humanity in Jesus Christ so that if you want to know the truth about who God is, you have to look to His Son, to the God-man. Jesus is not a myth. He's not the main character in some kind of folk tale or legend. He's a real historical figure who was seen and heard and touched by many. By underscoring the humanity and the deity of Christ, John is, is setting the stage for what's to come later in his letter when he actually directly addresses his opponents who denied these realities. They denied that God had come in the flesh. And in John's day, just as in ours, there were those who claimed to have discovered the real Jesus. And the real Jesus, they said, wasn't divine. And people typically don't have a problem today, do they? Believing 
that Jesus was a man who actually existed, that he actually lived in time and space and history. This is an undeniable fact. The evidence for this, even outside of the Bible, is overwhelming such that to deny it is akin to denying the existence of Aristotle or Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great. And so it's not really the humanity of Christ that's so often attacked today. It's his divinity that comes under fire. Jesus was a, a spiritual person, but, but God? I'm not so sure about that. And I alluded to the reason behind this thinking earlier in the sermon to admit that Jesus is God. It changes absolutely everything. It changes the game. It changes your whole life. Nothing is the same. It can't be. You cannot acknowledge the deity of Jesus Christ and just continue living out your days just as you always have. The deity of Christ is a truth that forever alters the trajectory of your life because by admitting that Jesus is God, you're admitting that you're not. And right there is where we discover the reason why so many people reject the Gospel. Christ's deity is an attack on human pride. And pride is at the core of society's religion of secular humanism. To, to secularize something is to empty it of any supernatural and spiritual qualities. And humanism seeks to elevate man as the supreme authority and judge of the truth. And so in secular humanism, you might think of it this way, that God is dethroned and man is enthroned. And this thinking has absolutely devastated our society, which worships at the altar of man's feelings and emotional whims. Our society is the way it is because of man's arrogant infatuation with himself. Human beings have deified themselves. And when you worship yourself, there's simply no room in your heart and in your life for another God. To admit that Jesus is God means that you have to reject yourself as God, which would undermine man's authority. It would crush our fragile ego. It entirely dismantles this self-made religion of secular humanism. And so the pride-filled unbeliever, friends, the deity of Jesus Christ is the supreme heresy. And yet, by God's grace, this is a truth, a precious truth that easily and quickly finds its way onto the lips of God's people. What John confesses in our text is what the church has always confessed. In the Nicene Creed, we declare that Jesus is, quote, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. It's easy to just recite those words uh, and just not think about it. But when you say these words, you are making a radical claim. You're declaring that you are not the Lord of your life. That your rights are not ultimate. That you are not on the throne. That your authority is not the supreme authority. That you don't exist for yourself, but you exist rather to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. To believe in the apostolic message that Jesus is the God-man. The focal point of the Gospel that John is so concerned to get across to us is that the Son of God was manifested in human flesh and that He actually tabernacled. He dwelt among us. And He tells us the reason that this is such good and comforting news. Notice how He calls Jesus the Word of Life and eternal life. He mentions in verse 3 that the apostles proclaim this eternal life to you 
so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, what John is doing here is identifying the greatest need that all human beings have, which is to have eternal life and fellowship with God. Because of sin, the human heart is naturally turned away from God and towards self such that we live not for Him, but for ourselves and for our own happiness and our own pleasure. Look around you, friends, and don't you see people everywhere who are enslaved? Absolutely in bondage to created things who search desperately in this world for purpose and meaning and significance, but they never truly find what they're looking for. They always come up short. Why? Because God did not make this world or anything in it to be a replacement for Himself. To live for and worship the perishable things of this world is the height of folly. And yet, that is what the depraved human heart so desperately craves. In our natural condition, we are alienated from the life of God. We're opposed to the truth of God. We're hostile to the holiness of God. We're unwilling to submit to the law of God. And we are happily marching down that road that leads only to the wrath of God. That's the natural state of every human being, including each one of us. Sinners are those who have turned away from the Lord in pursuit of idols, who've rejected His glory, His pleasure, His authority, His way of living for the sake of our own. John says that eternal life is in God, and yet the sinner in his natural condition is outside of God, and therefore cut off entirely from the source of life, spiritually dead in his sins, and liable to the judgment of hell. It's not a popular message, is it? Many churches have stopped preaching this message because it's not nice because it's offensive to our pride, it's not welcoming, it's not seeker-friendly. But if you read the Gospels, you quickly see that Jesus was never, ever, ever concerned for such things. He couldn't care less about being popular with the crowds. He never lost sleep because He was worried that He offended someone by exposing their sin. He never once sought the world's approval. He only ever and always sought the approval of His heavenly Father, which meant preaching the truth no matter the cost because immortal souls were at stake. And the truth that John sets before us is that the wages of sin is death. And sin's death-dealing power culminates in hell. Our sin has separated us from God so that outside of His gracious intervention we'd all perish eternally under His just and righteous and holy judgment. But here in our text, John proclaims to you the good news that God has in fact graciously intervened on our behalf. The Apostle announces to you the message of eternal life in Christ so that you would have fellowship with the Apostles because their fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. In other words, the Word of life was made manifest in this world for the purpose of securing for sinners eternal life and fellowship with God. The Gospel is about more. Much more than just escaping hell and judgment. That is certainly a big part of it. But it's not just about what you are saved from, but what you are saved into. 
Through Christ, you are saved into a a bond of everlasting union and communion with God. But how did Jesus secure for us so great a gift? Through His own death, in which He offered Himself up on the cross as a sacrifice to satisfy God's justice for our sin. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus was uniquely qualified for this mission. As a man, He served as our our human representative by bearing our sins and enduring in His body and in His soul the wrath of God in our place. And yet, one who's just a man, one who's just a finite creature, cannot truly satisfy the infinite justice of God. The only one who can satisfy God's infinite justice is God Himself. And so our Savior also had to be God so that He could offer up to His Father a sacrifice of infinite value that would pay off the immense debt of your sin, the immense debt of my sin, and forever extinguish the flames of judgment. And as He hung there on that cross, Jesus announced the sufficiency of His work in just three words. It is finished. The Lamb without blemish was slain. The penalty for sin was paid. The work was done. And yet our hope, don't we know it and rejoice in it, our hope is not just in a crucified Savior who dealt with our sin, but a risen Savior who's overcome death and who's entered into the fullness of life Himself. Only the One who is the resurrection and the life can give resurrection life to the dead. The Christ of Christianity is the resurrected and ascended King who invites sinners to trust in Him that they might have fellowship with Him and with His Father. This is the Gospel that was penned by the apostles and entrusted to us, to the church. This is the Gospel that's the central subject matter of all true Christian preaching. This is the Gospel that raises the dead. This is the Gospel that gives strength to the weary. This is the Gospel that comforts the brokenhearted. It's the Gospel that anchors the soul amid all the troubles of life. The Gospel announced to you in this text is that eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. Fellowship with God is an experiential reality in which you're brought into a personal relationship with the Author and Giver of life. If you're trusting in Jesus As your Savior, the Lord has made you His child by literally sharing with you the life of His Son. Eternal life and fellowship with God is that great reward that was purchased by Jesus, which He then freely bestows upon sinners apart from our works so that we might come to know the joy, the inexpressible joy, as Peter puts it, of living in union with Christ and the Father. In this text, Jesus is set before you in all of His glory. And He's issuing a personal invitation to each person here to trust in Him and to rest upon the One who is the source of life and blessedness and communion with the living God. And so if anyone here doesn't belong to Christ, this is an invitation to renounce your sin, to turn away from worshiping Yourself, lay down your pride and place your trust in Christ alone, for He is the only way to be reconciled to God. Jesus famously said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. 
This is not just a claim to divinity. That is a claim to exclusivity. Jesus isn't claiming to be a way, a truth, a life, but the way, the truth, the life. Our culture is obsessed with being inclusive and accepting of all beliefs, all values, all ways of life as if tolerance is the supreme virtue. But Jesus was radically exclusive and intolerant in the specific sense that He is no respecter of other religions. He does not tolerate the idea that there are many paths to heaven. Today's popular spiritual gurus will tell you to look within yourself to discover truth and to find your own personal God. But if you follow that advice, you might as well be walking off of a cliff. You will not find truth. And you will not find the true God. But you will find His judgment because outside of Christ, that is all there is. The God of truth and life is found only by looking outside of yourself to the Savior who was seen and heard and proclaimed by the apostles. Jesus said in John 17, this is eternal life that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. And so if you're to receive eternal life and come into fellowship with the living God, fellowship that transcends death and even hell itself, you must come by way of faith in the Son. In and of yourself, You're not good enough for God. And so abandon all trust in your good deeds. Abandon all hope in your own virtues, your own religious piety and morality, and put your trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as the only One who can wash away all of your guilty stains and bring you into this life-giving fellowship with God. This is the invitation John issues to the unbeliever. Repent and believe the Gospel. And to you who have, entered into this unbreakable bond of fellowship, John is also issuing an invitation to you. Don't think that this text doesn't apply to the believer. It does. This is an invitation to abide in Christ. Abide in the Gospel that's been recorded in Scripture and handed down to you by the apostles because only by abiding in the truth will you abide in fellowship with the Lord. Again, this passage is written against this backdrop of false teaching that's ravaging the church and threatening to lead the sheep into apostasy. And there's much false teaching today that continues to endanger God's people. The circumstances of of John's audience are not altogether different from our own today. And time doesn't permit me to, to dive into the particulars, but John is saying that you can align yourself with the apostles or with the apostates. You can have fellowship with one or the other, but not both. Why would you choose the apostles over the apostates? Because the apostles are in fellowship with the Father and with His Son. The apostles present the true Jesus, whereas the apostates present the false Jesus. And the true Jesus is life and fellowship with God. And every false Christ is only death and separation from God. There is great reward in following the apostles and great danger in following the apostates. And so there's this implicit warning in our text to every believer here. Do not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that you hear, but test the spirits as the Bible tells us. Test everything you hear, including from me, against the inspired and infallible Word of God. Jesus tells you in John 10 that when He speaks, His sheep 
hear and recognize His voice and they follow Him. Where does Jesus speak to His sheep? Through His written Word. It's through the Word of God that you hear the voice of God. And so the believer who's serious about abiding in Christ and keeping himself pure and unstained from the world, as James says, is the one who lives in the Scriptures and constantly feeds upon every word that comes from the mouth of God. Persist in the teaching of the apostles, knowing that they're not merely the words of men, but the living and active Word of God through which He conforms you, mind and heart, into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. This, says John, completes his joy. In verse 4, as I draw things to a close, John says it brings him great joy knowing that the Christians he's invested in are persevering in the truth and holding fast to Christ. I said this to my own congregation when I preached this message to them. And I know I can speak for your pastors in saying that we share John's sentiment. Laboring as pastors is not an easy job, but it's a rewarding job. And the greatest reward that you could ever give to your pastors is to follow Jesus to your dying breath. That's it. That's the greatest reward. That's what I want from my congregation more than anything else I know. That's what your pastors want from you. More important than your physical health, your financial needs, or your relational problems, however great uh, those things might be, is that each one of you abides in fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's our great concern and the reason that we labor as under-shepherds. And so, brothers and sisters, complete your pastor's joy tonight by following Jesus by feeding upon His Word, by holding to that apostolic witness that's been handed down to you, and by maintaining your good confession of Jesus Christ to the very end. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give You praise for the grace that You've lavished upon us in Your Son who did not count equality with You a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, as Paul says, by becoming our humble servant, even to the point of death on a cross. Lord, we thank You for Christ's sin-atoning sacrifice that appeased Your eternal wrath and judgment. We thank You for His glorious and triumphant resurrection through which we have eternal life. And we pray, Lord, that we would persist in this truth that we would abide in Christ and feed upon every word that comes from Your mouth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Jesus' name.